Many years ago, I was uh, in Panama City Beach, Florida. I was a young man seeking to uh, do mission work, and I was uh, having my cup of coffee one morning before I went off to work, and I was reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I read these words. For the love of Christ controls us. For we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised on their behalf. It was a mindset shift that began to affect me deeply. The love of Christ controls us. Imagine being mastered by the love of Christ and coming to the conclusion, what is my life about? I'm no longer to live for myself, but for Him who loved me and gave Himself for me and on Friday died for me and on Sunday was raised for me. The Apostle Paul, under the influence of the love of Christ, and I was beginning to get a taste of, of, of the beauty and the joy of that. And then the Apostle Paul goes on and says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And not only through the apostles, but through the church of Jesus Christ built upon the foundation of the apostles. We are ambassadors for Christ. And kids, you know what an ambassador does, right? You represent the king. We're called to represent his character. We're called to represent his message. We're called to represent his methods as we seek to be a light to the world for Jesus Christ. And so, we're always on the lookout looking for opportunities to observe Jesus in action. And in one sense, His way of conversing, His way of counseling is revealed in the New Testament letters. Jesus counsels His people through Paul, Peter, and more. But in another sense, His way of counseling is caught on videotape sometimes. In the revelation given to us through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and their Gospels. Perhaps you tend to think of Jesus as merely a preacher, one who proclaims God's Word to the crowds, and He is. But have you ever considered that He also converses God's Word with a particular person? That's what we find this morning in John chapter 4. Jesus presented as this most wonderful of counselors who goes out of his way to have an intentional conversation with a person who needs him. 
And when Jesus switches the mode from preaching to counseling, his character doesn't change, his motive doesn't change, his message doesn't change, but his method is tailored to the person. In this particular person's time of trouble. So we not only want to have this mindset that is revealed through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but we also want to follow the model that God reveals to us in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 35. Let me read the text from the Gospel of John for us. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well... And it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. 
He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out to the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the beauty of Jesus, and in seeing him, we might long to walk and talk and help like him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me set the scene for us. Jesus travels through Samaria, verse 4. It's the faster, it's the easier way, but it is not the usual way, and it is not the preferred way in the day of Jesus. Because you recall that after the reign of King Solomon, Israel split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom based in Samaria, is where the king, that wicked king, set up worship so that the people of God would not move out of town and go worship up in Jerusalem. And you know that in 1722 B.C., the northern kingdom was conquered and repopulated by the Assyrians. They defeated the Israelites and those left were left to intermarry with pagans. And so, those who considered themselves true Jews would go out of their way to go not through Samaria, but around Samaria. Now let me ask you, is that what you would do? As you trace your footsteps through any given week, do you go out of your way to avoid that unbeliever? Would you prefer to avoid that conversation? Would you prefer to huddle up with the people of God and avoid that hard work of conversating with unbelievers? Jesus moves through Samaria. 
he does the more difficult thing. And did you notice, verse 7, he encounters a woman from Samaria. This woman who is tripped up and trapped in her sins and her sufferings. Notice, she's a woman. And in that culture, a woman was disregarded. Notice too, she's a woman of Samaria. She's a half-sister of the Jews. And so she is not only disregarded, but she is despised. And notice thirdly, she's a woman with a bad reputation. You see, the other women, they go out to the well in the cool of the day, in the early morning. But it's 12 noon in the heat of the day. And she wants to avoid all of the other women. Because she knows her reputation, and so do they. So she's a woman who suffers alone, and she's a woman who expects to be ignored. But I want you to notice the setting. This is the story that takes place by a well. And kids, think about all of the stories you can remember where there is a special encounter at the well. Men and women meeting at a well. Abraham's servant finds Rebekah and takes her to be Isaac's wife. Do you remember? It happened at the well. Jacob meets Rachel and takes her to be his wife. And it all began at the well. When I was a student at the University of North Carolina, if you look up uh, the iconic image for the University of North Carolina is this old well right in the heart of campus. And I remember when Cindy and I were beginning to date, I invited her to dinner at the well. It was sort of a picnic that I set up, and it must have worked <laughs> because she decided to marry me a couple of years later, and it all began at the old well. Could it be that another love story is in the making? Could it be that Jesus has come to take this woman to be His very own? Let's follow the conversation. One exchange at a time. And I want to say to you, if you're here exploring Christianity, you know yourself not to be a Christian, but you're curious. I want you to notice how Jesus comes near to you. How He speaks to you in this passage. Put yourself in the shoes of this woman. Or, you're here this morning and you profess faith in Jesus Christ. You've been walking with Him for years. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to watch and follow this wonderful counselor engage an unbeliever. It's one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. Let's follow the exchange. Let's follow the wonderful counselor one exchange at a time. Verse 7 and 9. The first exchange. First of all, despite what the world says, Jesus 
loves her by engaging her. Give me a drink. He throws out a bridge. He's seeking relationship. He makes a request. It's amazing. He's piercing the cultural barrier. He's willing to be associated with her. And he's piercing the religious barrier. He's willing to be contaminated by her. He's moving into her world. And notice how Jesus treats her with dignity as a real person. As God's image. Someone who is actually capable of helping Him. And so He makes a request. He humbles Himself by seeking her help. Frederick Godet writes, He, Jesus, is not unaware that the way to gain a soul is often to ask a service of it. And an unbeliever, mind you. His purpose is to establish a relationship. And it's always His method. He goes to work to change us once He's built the relationship. And so we're called to begin where Jesus begins. Not by coming at the person in judgment, but by coming to the person, entering this person's world, and seeking a relationship. That's his pursuit. But did you notice her response? How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Verse 9. It's astonishing. And if we might use a little bit of sanctified imagination, it, it, it could very well be that her words are revealing her character. This woman is not meek and mild, but she's bold and brassy. And might this actually be the reason why so many men were attracted to her? How is it? Paul Miller writes, it's the question you ask of someone if someone defies the laws of gravity. If someone levitates in front of you, you don't say, why are you levitating? You say, how can you do this? It's something strange and outside of your experience. But by loving her, Jesus has, if you will, levitated in front of her, doing something remarkably astonishing. How is it that you would do this to me? Can you imagine conversing this conversing with this woman? How would you respond? Would you be put off by her brassy boldness? Follow Jesus. Secondly, despite her directness, Jesus loves her by enticing her. It's the second exchange, verses 10 through 12. His pursuit. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. You see, He's pointing her beyond her world of blindness. He's pointing her to the gift of God. The living water of the Holy Spirit. Not the stagnant water, but the living, running water that... He is pleased to give. It's a metaphor for the life-giving Holy Spirit promised and anticipated by the prophets. We looked at this a few weeks ago when we considered John chapter 7. 
Isaiah the prophet could could see it down the corridors of time. He could see from a distance the giving of this living water. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. The effect of these living waters. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, there's some skepticism, skepticism, perhaps even some sarcasm. You're going to draw living water without digging? Yeah, right. Jesus understands she's caught in idolatry, attempting to make life work apart from God. David White of Harvest USA writes, Calling a struggler to abandon their hope feels like stealing their canteen and leaving them in the desert in loneliness and despair. They are prone to lash out. So how you respond is critical. How would you respond? The Apostle Paul tells us that as we move toward the unbeliever, we're called to dress for the job. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. Colossians chapter 3. Imagine conversing with this woman. Would you be put off by her sarcasm? Would you defend yourself? Would you lash out the moment she lashes out at you? Look at how Jesus responds. Notice the third exchange, verses 13 through 15. Despite her sarcasm, Jesus loves her by inviting her. Notice his pursuit. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. It'll be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He invites her to consider her broken relationship before God. He's working with this this physical thirst that points beyond itself to a spiritual poverty, a life broken apart from God. She's made for relationship, but her sin breaks the relationship. And so she's thirsty, as am I, as are you. But Jesus keeps on coming toward you. Blaise Pascal, the great French physicist and philosopher, a Christian, wrote, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She still cannot see, can she, beyond her physical senses. She's still stuck on her felt needs. She still has this lack of concern for her sin. As Richard Phillips, commenting on this passage, writes, she thinks of Jesus as a plumber, not as a Savior. But Jesus keeps on moving toward her. 
Imagine conversing with this woman. Imagine you are this woman. What are you thinking? How are you responding? Are you distracted by felt needs? Are you a believer? Frustrated by this unbeliever's blindness? Despite her blindness, fourthly, Jesus loves her by confronting her. It's the fourth exchange. Verses 17 through 20. He pursues. Go call your husband and come here. He sidesteps the felt needs in order to surface the real need. Why? Because as long as you and I are blind to our sin, we will never come to Him who can do something about it. As long as she drinks from the things that leaves her thirsty, she will never come to Jesus to find the solution that quenches her thirst. Love accepts the person, but with a commitment to God's redemptive agenda. And so, love is willing to take this risk to hold up the mirror and to lovingly confront the person. To cut in order to heal. Like a wise, loving surgeon. Even if it gets messy, love is willing to go there, but oh so humbly and oh so gently as Jesus. I have no husband. It's the shortest sentence in the whole passage. It's rather curt, isn't it? It's uninviting. It's, it's hiding. It's keeping a distance. No longer is she coming on strong. She's, she's hiding. She's trying to control. She's hard to get close to. She's seeking safety. She's hiding behind the half-truth to protect herself from full exposure. She's afraid of true intimacy because she knows her guilt. Imagine conversing with this woman. How would you respond? Would you backpedal when it begins to get a little messy? Would you change the subject? Would you try to smooth things over? Follow the wonderful counselor. Despite her withdrawnness, Jesus loves her by exposing her. It's the fifth exchange. Verses 17 through 20. You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. He's gentle, but he's undeterred. He moves toward her. And why won't he let up? And why won't Jesus let up with you and with me? Paul Miller writes, He loves her just the way she is, but he refuses to leave her just the way she is. He moves toward her. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, that's the place where people ought to worship. She's in a corner, isn't she? She's getting a little desperate. She's ready to run. She avoids the insight, but she admits the insight, but she avoids her guilt. She changes the subject. John Piper, commenting on this passage, says, a trapped animal will chew his own leg off to survive. A trapped sinner will mangle his own mind and rip up the rules of logic and discourse. Why, yes, as long as we're speaking about my five husbands and my adultery, what is your stance on the issue of where people should worship? Have you ever done that? Jesus is getting close. He's coming to the very heart. He loves her. He's moving toward her. How would you respond? Imagine conversing with her. Despite her evasiveness, Jesus loves her by indulging her. It's the sixth exchange, verses 21 through 25. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Notice what He doesn't do. He doesn't go back to the issue of her sin. He doesn't call attention to her attempt to dodge. He doesn't give in to her desire to pick a fight. Notice what He does do. He runs with the issue she's raised. He keeps the focus on seeking and finding her. He says to her, here's the issue. It's not where you worship, but it's who you worship, and it's how you worship. Who do you worship? Who are we called to worship? We're called to worship the Father, the one who would see you in Christ, clothed in the beauty of His Son, and would, who would receive you with His smile. If you do not know His grace, then you will not try to approach Him on on the basis of His grace. You'll keep trying to approach Him on the basis of your merit, but oh, if you only knew. The Father, and how He longs to clothe you in the Son, and to look upon the beauty of who you are in Christ. How do we worship? In spirit, sincerely from the heart, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, and in truth, without pretending, according to how God has revealed Himself in Christ. True worship is the Father receiving worship through the Son by His people giving that worship by the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with His Word. I know that Messiah is coming, she says. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. What's going on? Might she be feeling a little more uncomfortable? Trying to put him off and shut him up? We, why don't we leave this to the experts sometime later? 
Or maybe was she beginning to suspect the truth and she's testing him perhaps to see what he might say? Finally, despite everything about her, Jesus loves her by disclosing himself to her. It's the final exchange. Verse 26 and following. I who speak to you am he. Literally, I am the one who is speaking to you. This is holy ground. The God who revealed himself to Moses. Can you believe it? Is the God who is revealing himself to this brassy, empty, adulterous woman. The God who enlisted Moses in his service to bring about this great exodus is the same God who is enlisting this woman into his service. Did you notice? The woman left her water jar. She's trading waters. Did you see that? She came out to the well, but she leaves the jar behind because she's found the true water. She goes into town and says to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She's full and overflowing with living water. And she's going into town. She's no longer hiding from the townspeople. She's a fountain of life who is giving and serving. Paul Miller wonderfully sums this up by saying, she says, come see a man. A man who moved into my world. A man who enjoyed me and yet who was not afraid of me. A man who was honest with me. A man who saw right through me and yet accepted me. A man who loved me without limit. Come see the Messiah. And how did they respond? They went out of town and were coming to Jesus. Verse 30. So what's so significant about this conversation as we close? Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. I'm not hungry. I'm full. My soul is so satisfied. I just had the most remarkable conversation. I'm all about pursuing true worshipers. And I found one. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My father is seeking true worshipers and my food is to transform worshipers of idols into worshipers of the true and living God. I love my job. And I say to you, then and to a church called Harvest Church, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Look up. It's, it's like all of these people coming from out of town and they look like white barley waving in the wind, ready to be harvested. These conversations still happen today. And this morning, if you don't know Christ, perhaps in the reading and preaching of God's Word, you've gotten the sense that 
Jesus is pursuing you. And he is. He's seeking true worshipers of the true and living God. Would you come to him? Would you need him? Or perhaps you've been walking with Christ for many, many years. And Jesus is calling each one of us to love our neighbor, to move into the world, to engage in a loving, wise, intentional conversation, to follow the wonderful counselor, and to converse Christ in dependence upon His Spirit in order that West Michigan might know the true and living God. Let's go to Him now in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You that You give us window into this conversation. The Apostle John writes that You have done many other things that are not recorded in this Gospel. Many things that they were written about even all of the libraries and all of the world could not contain the good news. But you have given us this episode. And what a story. Thank you for taking us to the well. Thank you for opening our eyes to see that you are seeking the lost. And we pray that we would grow up into our calling. That you would enable us to move like Jesus moves toward our unbelieving neighbors to converse Christ as you open up doors of opportunity. Please do this for the sake of your great name, your fame in West Michigan, and for the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.